2: One of the finest and most beloved French actresses of her generation. Stars in the performance of a lifetime. Je t'aime. A gripping portrait of a brilliant musician. Her secret world of obsession and desire. and the young man drawn into her lonely, desperate life.
3: Puis-je vous embrasser dans le cou, Erika? Ah. Ah. Je ferai parvenir mes instructions. À écrit.
2: The Los Angeles Times calls it a powerful portrait. Time Magazine raves a fevered, fascinating tale. Dazzling, says the LA Weekly, and the London Guardian hails. Isabelle Huppert gives the performance of her career.
3: Tous
2: les jeux que... Winner Cannes Film Festival Best Actress Isabelle Huppert. Winner Cannes Film Festival Best Actor Benoît Magimel. The Piano Teacher, a film by Michael Hanukkah.
0: Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Stashew. Yep,
1: uh, this is a movie that you asked me to watch.
0: Also joining us this week is Mr. Jared Bauer.
1: Hey guys, thanks for having
3: me.
0: This week we are looking at the 2001 film from director Michael Haneke, The Piano Teacher, based on the 1983 book by... Alfrede Jelenic. I'm going to butcher a lot of names in this episode, I'm sure. This film stars Isabel Huper as our titular pedagogue. She's a woman trapped in a harrowing relationship with her mother. She is abused and belittled at home, only to turn around and do the same thing to her students. Things change, however, when she meets Walter Klemmer, played by Benoit Magamel. Benoit Magimel again, forgive me, Walter is a bit obsessed with his prickly piano teacher, leading to a mutually dissatisfying relationship between the pair. As always, we'll be getting into spoiler territory for this film, so be warned. Now, Chris, I imagine this was the first-time watch for you, is that correct? Yeah, you'd be right.
1: Yeah, this is pretty much what I was expecting from a Haneke film. This is the only other Haneke film I've seen other than the remake of Funny Games that he did, the remake that he directed of his own film. This movie is... Yeah, I don't think I'm watching this again. It's it's rough. It is a very rough watch. It is a film that will turn off most people within the first hour, and if you can make it to the hour 40 mark, uh, most people will turn it off at the hour 40 mark, because it becomes insanely uncomfortable in a way that uh, very few films are anymore kudos to haneke for doing that i mean he's i think i read somewhere that he's the austrian man of misery or something to that effect and yeah this film
0: pretty much keeps in line with everything that i've read and seen of his films so jared did i hear right you took your mom to see this on mother's day is that correct
3: No, not quite. But gosh, I am am feeling a little bit like a sicko because uh, I just watched it uh, before this podcast, and I believe it was either the third or fourth time I've seen it.
0: And what did you think? So I'm a big
3: sucker for any any movies that... Uh, explore the world of classical music. I mean, some of the, my favorite elements of Kubrick films are the fact that he has uh, displays classical music with such reverence. I like the world of kind of upper-class, elite, classical music competitiveness. Uh, so I like this movie a lot. As far as what uh, Chris is saying about the hour 40 mark, I think I agree. And I actually think, although that's kind of where the most shocking things happen and the things that people remember this film the most for, I don't really like it. Like, kind of kills the movie for me, but not because I'm disgusted, not because uh, you know, I'm kind of desensitized, to be honest. Uh, But I just, I don't know. I I don't know what to think of it. I'm starting to think that, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to like prepare to sound smart on this podcast, but I've kind of come to the conclusion that I should treat this movie like a David Lynch movie. And that if I try and look too deeply, it's probably I'm going to miss the point.
1: I feel the same way that you do Jared about the desensitization. My my reasoning for that hour 40 mark is is similar to what you said. At that point I just the movie just kind of goes completely off the rails and stops even being I mean even worth watching to some extent. That scene at the hour 40 mark is so unbearable to watch that I I don't even understand why it's there.
3: Yeah, and it just you don't get it. One of the reasons I watched this movie for, like, the third time I watched it or the second time I watched it was because I had just come back from Black Swan, and I was like, okay, it's basically the same movie as The Piano Teacher, but I guess it had been a while since I'd seen it because – and and up to the point where the movie is relatively thematically parallel to Black Swan, it's good, but then once it goes off the rails, I just don't know what to think anymore.
0: You know, I hadn't thought about Black Swan while I was watching this, but I can totally see what you're saying as far as this overbearing mother character. The repressed sexuality that's happening throughout this, uh, the striving to perform in an artistic field against so much competition. I mean, there's certain parallels there that I will completely grant you.
3: Yeah, the other one that I thought about this time, and once again, the, the ending confounds this entirely, but up to a certain point, I was interpreting it largely as like a discrepancy between discipline and passion. You see this a lot in Black Swan where Vincent Cassell's character is saying like, you know, you're hitting all the right marks, but I'm just not feeling the passion. And in the same way, uh, Isabelle Huppert's character is always saying that, you know, you're hitting the right notes, uh, but, you know, there's no passion there, or it's better to miss a note in Beethoven than to interpret it poorly. And I was kind of going with that interpretation But at the end I was just like, shit, man I don't know what to think
1: I'll say this much, I like this movie a lot more than I like Black Swan And again, I'm not a huge fan of Darren Aronofsky
3: I'm not lately
1: It's one of those things where A director like himself They fall into this class of director That sometimes they get a little too heady For their own good And they kind of reach this kind of point in their career where someone should probably tell them, you need to back it off just a little bit. Maybe don't do this as far as you want to take it. And I think Aronofsky has either reached that point or has gone past that point. So, especially with Mother, which...
3: I'm with you. Although I think that Black Swan was like his last accessible film.
1: Yeah. I mean, yes, I would agree with that 100%
0: not talking about Black Swan, but talking about The Piano Teacher, the mother-daughter relationship is so crucial to this film. And that is really where we start off with a lot of this. Though I will say that the opening credits of this film are fascinating unto themselves. This whole idea of we are in a movie that is about music, kind of, or music is a player in this film. And the way that We are getting the music controlled when we hear it and when we don't hear it, and we are introduced almost immediately to these overhead shots of hands on keyboards, hands on the the keys of the piano, and limiting our view to just this little slice of the world. And then also when the title cards are coming up, when the actor credits are coming up and these things, we are without music altogether. We're just going right to the card and then back to the music and the the visuals and then back to the card. And Haneke is removing the music from these parts, which is also kind of going to the very, very end of the film. In a movie called The Piano Teacher, there's no music over the end credits, which is an interesting choice as well. He's very, very controlling of when we hear the music and when we don't. And that's introduced right in these opening credits.
1: I really like the opening credits though because it's so disjointed and really not what you're expecting. I mean it, it I there are very few films that I can think of off the top of my head that do the credits like this, and the way that Haneke does the credits where it cuts back and forth between silence and then the piano and silence and the piano, it's really disjointed. Kind of like this movie's tone overall. It's kinda disjointed and I mean it's it's kinda of setting you up for this is where the movie's going. You're kind of being conditioned unconsciously to that, but this is where the movie is going. It's very disjointed and back and forth.
0: It puts you on edge right off the bat.
3: And it really draws your attention to the move or the music being played diegetically, which it does for most of the movie, but it does break that rule, I think once, maybe twice.
0: And where it breaks it it is fascinating. There's definitely one point that we'll be talking probably quite a bit about. So, yeah, we're pretty quickly introduced to our main character, uh, Erica, uh, played by Isabel Huppert, who I I love Isabel Huppert. She is amazing. Oh, she is so great.
3: One of my favorite actresses.
0: Not to... Sideline the conversation she's absolutely gorgeous but in this movie she is so underplayed and just like the splotchiness that they do on her skin and everything she just did and the way that her hair is kind of unkempt a lot of times or like she'll just kind of throw it back into a, a you know little pony or whatever it's just like she is playing this kind of Dowdier person so well that everything about her, about her appearance, and especially about her outfit, and we'll definitely be talking about her clothes through this, just really play into that character. She does it so well. Well, what was that? What was that
3: movie that came out uh, two years ago that was similarly with her in some pretty harrowing scenes? L. She was great in that, too, and I really liked that movie.
0: And she was just in one called... I think it was mrs hyde or madam hyde that i have yet to watch but i'm really curious to see it
3: yeah she's amazing
0: and apparently haneke said that he wouldn't make this movie unless she was the main character in this movie this is one of these times where this went through not a ton of hands this wasn't like a total recall or something where we had 20 people writing on it this went through hands when the book came out in 1983 it was optioned pretty quickly it was going to be adapted by uh valley export and somebody somebody else i can't remember and then it moved over to paulus manker and then it moved over to haneke and manker was going to direct it and eventually he dropped out and then it was just haneke and Haneke's like isabel huper if you're not in this i'm not going to make this movie and when she read the script she was like okay there's potential here i can do this and I can't imagine this role going to anybody else because she brings that intensity to this. And there's so many times where we're just looking at her like that one hour and 40 minute mark that we were talking about before. But there are moments where we're just looking at her and looking at her looking and trying to figure out what is she looking at? What is she thinking? What's going on in her head? And she's the kind of actor or actress where you can look at them just being still and can sense that there's a lot of stuff going on behind their eyes.
3: My favorite part is the jump cuts when Walter's playing. I don't want to get ahead, but I think that that's a a good example of how her relatively blank face can express so much.
0: We need to talk about the relationship with her mother. Now, this immediately put my wife on edge to see Erica. And I like that her mother doesn't even have a name in the credits. It's just the mother. The mother's played by Annie, uh, Girardot, I believe is her name. And she is just amazing. She's so harsh and she is, she's everything that Joan Crawford wishes she could have been. She is just the harshest mom and so controlling of everything. And I love that one of the first scenes that we get with them is this whole thing where, uh, Erica has come home a little bit late. And her mother is all over and her mom discovers that there's, well, she takes Erica's bag and rifles through it. And inside there's a dress that Erica bought with the money that, that basically goes to the house and it, is our first it's our introduction to this whole idea of the mother even controlling the clothes that erica wears and there's this whole big thing about her clothes and clothes going missing from her closet and her mom cutting up her clothes and all these things she is very very controlling of everything that erica is doing and especially the dress especially that shell that erica gets wrapped in so every time we see erica on screen we really have to be very cognizant of what her mother has allowed her to wear or what she has chosen for her to wear outside of the house. And there's some great outfits that we can talk about, but yeah, this whole fight and then it escalates very quickly, but we know that this kind of thing has been happening for years just by watching their interactions and to see Erica attack her mom is one of the most unsettling things, even though I really like that she's attacking your mom, but I know I shouldn't like that.
3: Yeah, it's amazing that they start the movie with kind of a, uh, almost like the straw that broke the camel's back or a breaking point, which I think is really efficient. But uh, also, you know, it's interesting the way that the mother does. she's She leaps a lot of shame onto Erica, and that's kind of her, like, it, it's it's pure humiliation that is is the main tool that she uh, uses to kind of exert this totalitarian control over her life.
0: You can tell by watching this, the way that her mother then, after this attack, is just kind of waiting and waiting for Erica to apologize. And then after that happens, you get the feeling, this probably happens more often than it doesn't happen. And it just makes you realize how sick this cycle of violence and control is in the house. And that we know, the mother knows that Erica is going to apologize and just kind of get right back under mom's thumb again mom doesn't really even have to say anything or do anything to get erica back in line it's just it's pretty amazing and then when we quickly find out that they don't just sleep in the same room that they sleep in the same bed then that throws a whole other level of what the fuck is going on in this relationship on top of that it's definitely not traditional well,
1: it's like a whole Oedipal edible thing, right? I mean,
0: that's the whole issue with
1: her mother in this film is that it's like a weird play on Oedipus, especially towards the end of the film where it really just kind of goes off the rails in regards to their relationship. But it's like s- kind of sowing those roots and those seeds of this weird Oedipal relationship between the two of them that it seems only one of them is really in on if that makes sense
3: another way that you can read it is that you know uh, not so much that there's ever been like a sexual act or like an act of sexual congress that's gone on between them at least until the end of the movie but that She has inhibited her notions of desire so much that, you know, the idea of sharing a bed with somebody isn't something that ever even has a sexual context. So once, you know, the erotic enters her life, she is reacting to it in a very extreme way later on in the movie.
0: It doesn't help that I've been doing all this research on The Exorcist 2 and subsequently The Exorcist, because there's this whole subtext in The Exorcist of Reagan wanting to have sex with her mother and it coming out through this demonic possession, you know, when she takes her head and forces it down on her crotch and says, lick me. It's like, yeah, okay. So I'm like watching these things almost back to back. And it's just like, Oh, for fuck's sakes, how many movies, how many more movies am I going to watch where a daughter wants to have sex with her mother? I mean, it's not necessarily a subgenre that I want to explore maybe on Pornhub, but not when I go to the movies.
1: And let's be honest on Pornhub. That seems to be all the rage right now. So you would not be far from finding it on there.
0: No, it'd be pretty easy. It'd be on my front page, recommended for you. They would know that I've been watching these movies, so it'd be right there. Erica is torn down at home. Her mother is always tearing into her. And then Eric exhibits, Erica exhibits that same demeanor towards her students to the point where it's uncomfortable to watch her with her students. It's like she doesn't seem to offer any kind of praise to the point where she's making one of her students at least cry, The student named Anna. And it was a very smart idea that Haneke had when he adapted the screenplay that he doesn't do flashbacks to Erica and her mother when they were growing up, when Erica was growing up but he actually uses Anna and her mother as kind of stand-ins for the early relationship for Eric and her mother. So it's this nice kind of parallel relationship that we have going on of this other mother and other daughter and the way that the other mother is, she's not necessarily, doesn't seem that controlling, but she's very frantic about things and the way that she steps in and tries to defend her daughter, but not necessarily, it doesn't seem like a heroic way, if you know what I mean.
3: I mean, she'll yield to the suggestion of Erica almost immediately. Another thing about this scene that I found interesting, and if we're going to continue on with the possible interpretation of it being about, uh, you know, the perils of – Radically inhibited desires. She's like, sir, she's looking out the window during this initial montage of her teaching her pupils a lot, which to me, like, definitely evokes a classic image of longing. But, you know, it's like a longing that she doesn't even recognize until, I guess we'll get there later, but I would argue until uh, Walter plays Schubert for her and it kind of awakens something.
0: The music in the film. Is very smart as far as when the music is used, when it's not. We kind of talked about that with the opening credits and the use of Schubert. And um, I don't think they actually play any um, Schumann, but they talk about him uh, at least one point. And the the piece that they keep playing by Schubert is one of these pieces that was written towards the end of his life when he had syphilis and was slipping into madness and then the same thing with Schumann when she talks about the piece by him it's another one he also went mad towards the end of his life and it's another piece that he wrote right you know on that precipice before he went completely bonkers so that both of these uh composers and both of them uh, ironically enough, starting with SCHU in the, at least in the English spelling of it. And not to, uh, be this person, but I will anyway. Anna's last name, uh, starts with SCH as well, though hers is Schober. But, uh, to have both of these, uh, these writers, these, uh, composers, uh, being talked about, uh, as they're both going mad and then also hearing Anna, or sorry, hearing Erica's mother say to to Erica that she's the schubert expert it's like oh okay, is that it's almost a dig like you know <laughs> like you you're you're the Schubert expert because you're also going mad, and that's really kind of what it feels like in this movie is that she is right there on that precipice, and it only takes a little bit to push her over.
3: yeah, one of the things I find interesting about uh using uh Schubert and especially Schumann is that uh Schubert and Schumann, or specifically Schumann, is one of the prototypical romantics of of that era, and there's an irony to how Walter is extremely romantic, and uh, he's able to perform these pieces with a certain passion that really kind of disturbs her, if nothing else, and yet she, throughout the movie, just rejects any kind of romanticism in her everyday life, yet she claims to... And Schubert is kind of both a romantic and a classical composer, but she rejects any kind of romanticism in favor of what she later calls her intelligence, which will overcome any emotions she may have. So I found that quite interesting.
0: When it's like she talks the talk about the passion and the the artistry and all of these things but she doesn't want it you know like she lives in this world of art you know for lack of a better term to me you know classical music is one of the high arts and she lives in this world but she's so far removed from it it's like she can she's that person who can hit all those notes but she doesn't seem to have that passion, at least in her regular day-to-day, because there are so many times where you're looking at her and you're like, What is she thinking? What's going on? And she doesn't express it. And that's those those moments where she does express herself, they take you by surprise. Like when she attacks her mother, it's just like, oh my God, what's going on? Because she goes from zero to sixty. Just immediately, and and lashes out. And other times, she is just so withdrawn and withheld, and just in control of herself, or being controlled by her mom. That those she is just the the cold. I guess she's the Wintress of of uh, of uh, Schumann, uh, or sorry, of Schubert. You know, she's like just very very icy. So I don't want to say that she's frigid, even though we're in Vienna with this thing. I don't want to venture into uh, Dr. Freud's office by any means and, and start talking about frigidity. We'll talk about phalluses and stuff later on. So all the Freudians in the audience will be very happy about that. But uh, at this point, let's not say that she's a frigid woman. The moment that took me by surprise the very first time that I saw this and the moment that I think about when I come back to this film or I don't think about that stuff that we talked about earlier and that we'll talk about again. I thought about that scene when she goes to the peep show, because that was such a surprise for me because she does seem so in control and so tightly wound that it almost feels like she shouldn't be sexual, if that makes any sense. But there she is wearing, and I was going to talk about the outfit. She's wearing this, like trench coat so she looks like she's basically a a, uh not a peeper like a flasher
3: flasher. yeah (laughs) that's hilarious i didn't think about that till just now
0: and going in and all the men that are there and i didn't notice the first time that i watched this that the peep show is part of a mall it was such a strange thing to see (sighs)
3: vienna man
1: europe in general mike don't you understand us americans are very sexually desensitized we're supposed to be – well, I guess, no, Europeans are sexually desensitized. We're not.
0: Yeah, we're the uptight ones. Well, I've been to the Red Light District in several cities, but I didn't remember going into the mall and like, oh, yeah, and here's the peep show. So I was I was taken by surprise. I was also a little surprised at, um, you know, that they didn't clean up the booths as often as maybe they should have. But I think that's to Erica's benefit and to our detriment.
1: Yeah, no, that's – the, kind of the point in the movie early on where you realize where this movie is going and kind of what this movie is going to be focusing on is when she starts smelling these semen coated tissues she starts huffing huffing the cum rag At least she's not huffing the cum box so
3: I showed this movie to a friend in one of the times I saw it and it was the point where they were like oh okay that this is the kind of movie we're watching cool you know it's it's just definitely lets you know that some there's some shit going on uh this is actually the point where so that uh, a Schubert piece plays that if you guys are fans of Barry Lyndon like I am uh, I can't think I can't hear this dee 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 d without thinking of Barry Lyndon but this is one of the few times where we're seeing her uh do a, a a a practice with a um with a piano trio and then the music continues until she gets into the porno and then when she Chooses which porno she wants to watch, the music stops, and then she, you know, is enjoying it for a little bit. And then when she starts huffing the cum rag, as 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 obscene as that sounds, I don't really know how to uh, how to describe it better. Uh, another Schubert song starts fading in, which I found pretty interesting. And it starts pretty quiet and then continues to get uh, louder and louder as it transitions into the next scene.
0: And at first, it's completely non-diegetic. We don't know where that music is coming from. So it's interesting that they're mixing this piece with what's happening on screen. And there's so much voyeurism that's happening in this film. Everybody is watching everything all the time. You know, every time we see the mother, when she's at home, she's watching television. When we see Erica, she's watching her students or looking out that window like you're talking about or here she is going into this peep show there's so many times that we are looking at people and in i mean we could get into laura Mulvey territory and talk about you know who's in control of the gaze throughout this entire film and that would be a very interesting way to read this another interesting way to read this is the idea of this peep show that she's in, this little booth that she's in, because this is one of many times that she's in this small enclosed space. Because we're going to have that again later on when she's inside of a bathroom and the space is violated by Walter, uh, one of her students. And then we're going to have, you know, this just the idea of doors and. And spaces and rooms come up again and again and again in this, and especially when it comes to Erica's house that is like her safe zone through so much of this movie. And when that gets violated, that's when shit really hits the fan. And one of the other times that she's in a small room is pretty close to after that scene. And it's another somewhat shocking scene, which is when she's in her bathroom at home. And I found her outfit very interesting here as well. She's wearing this kind of bathrobe that is very flowered. It's probably the loudest thing that she wears through the entire film. And she's, let's say she's expressing herself by cutting herself in the bathroom. And it's not just, I don't want to say regular cutting because, you know, there is probably not such a thing, but you know, she's not cutting her arm. She's not cutting her leg. The way that she's holding this mirror and the way that she's, manipulating herself it looks like she's actually cutting into her own genitals and it gets mistaken the blood from that gets mistaken for period blood uh, in like the subsequent scene by her mother but here we get to see kind of you know the way that she's manipulating things and it's just like what the hell's going on and then when you finally see the blood it's like oh okay and we've talked on the show before about cutting and just the idea that it's one of the few areas of control some people that feel that they're out of control of their lives out of control of their bodies it's one way that they can kind of exert control on themselves and on the universe and i would say that this definitely seems to fit into that idea because she is so controlled by her mom that this is one of the few times where she's alone and she gets to do what she wants and she gets to exhibit some control over her own self
3: do you think that she's done that before or do you think we're seeing it for the first time
1: i got the sense that she'd done it before maybe not to the extent that she was doing it in this scene because in this scene it felt like she was doing some sort of and i don't want to suppose but it was where she was cutting herself it looked like some sort of genital mutilation. The way
3: I interpret it was that she was punishing herself from being aroused by Walter's performance.
0: I can see that. And we should talk about Walter. Walter is not to sound too Nazi-ish, but he's like an Aryan god, this guy, this blonde-haired kid who stands taller than I think most of the kids in here. And he just – I mean – to be honest, he's a very good looking young man and he plays piano beautifully. And he just is such a conundrum to her, and especially that he pays so much attention to her. And it's almost to the point where you wonder is he really paying attention to her or is this what she's imagining is happening?
3: Is there like an element of psychosis that's kind of tainting her subjectivity? Is that what you're asking?
0: That might be what I'm asking, yeah. Yeah,
3: see, I don't know. I I think one of the telling in the scene where they've uh, already had the scene in the bathroom and they've already expressed their interest in each other, there's a really interesting part where she says, she says, Schubert was quite ugly. Did you know that? But with your looks, nothing could ever hurt you. And I think that's interesting. I think one of the reasons why Walter is such a force of chaos in her life is because not only is he super good looking, uh, he comes from a super wealthy family, and he's an engineer by trade. This music thing is just kind of his hobby, and he is pure passion. You know, he at, when he meets her at the party, he wants to kiss the hand of a woman that plays such Bach, and of course, she kind of gets a little bit distant, calling his enthusiasm unfashionable, and. I think that there's something about the effortlessness that kind of confounds her whole worldview. Everything about this movie, either from Erica, from Anna, is all about sacrifice, that your whole life and all your desires are so fucked up now because of the sacrifice that you made to be the best, to be the best Schubert or Schubert player in the world. And then Walter comes along, plays the best Schubert she's ever heard. And it's a good looking, privileged dude who is an engineer by trade and just does music for fun. I would, they, yeah. I mean, that would that would fuck my world up if I lived by this maxim that the more I uh, sublimate my pain, the better artist I'll be, and that ends up being not true because it's almost like Amadeus in that way, where uh, Salieri, you know, bring uh, lives a world lives a life of uh, abstinence and you know self inflicted uh, limitations so that God will grant him the ability to be the greatest musician, and then Mozart comes along with his fart jokes. And, uh, you know, really give something that is to him divinely inspired.
0: Yeah, Mozart just drinking and partying and reveling and this life of debauchery. But yet God has shined his light on to this little dwarf who just makes a mockery of everything that Salieri stands for. I can completely see where you're coming from with that. And when you talk about sacrifice and doing all these things, I think about that that physical sacrifice. You talked about Black Swan, and I think about the physical sacrifice that we see Natalie Portman going through with just the pain of the toe shoes and everything. So I can't even imagine how often – erica has had to practice in order to get to where she's at and just probably you know played the piano till her fingers have bled almost just to get to where she's at and then yeah to have this kid come in and just on a lark he's able to do these things but again he's almost he's he's a almost a, a, a devilish figure this creature coming into her life and he's almost a fantasy figure as well and that's the way that she kind of flips from one to another as far as does she hate this guy or does she love this guy is she obsessed with this guy in a positive way if there is such a thing or is she obsessed with this guy in a very negative way and i love that she almost immediately tries to crush his dreams that whole scene of him playing and her listening and then her comments about his playing and just she's the only person that votes against him coming into this academy but she makes such a case against this guy just such i wouldn't say vitriol but you can tell that there she's just biting on every word when she says it
3: i think it's because she feels vulnerable and she's trying to protect herself
1: yeah i would agree with that it's one of those things where if someone is just naturally talented at something and they come into a situation And then you've got someone who has been breaking their back for their entire life to get to that point. They feel very threatened. They're like a caged animal. They feel threatened in the situation. And that's those initial scenes for me is what it felt like with her character that she felt very threatened by him. And then like once she was able to get past the fact that she was threatened and obviously as well attracted to him, it's kind of when the film starts to kind of go into the downward spiral. But When you've got her feeling as threatened by him as she is early on in the film because, again, he's just an engineer and this is just – oh, this is just a lark. This is just something I do and I happen to be good at it. You know, she really kind of – her character's demeanor changes very quickly when she's essentially forced to have to deal with him on a weekly basis. One other thing I wanted
3: to say about, about Mike's question about whether or not he's a demonic figure or a good figure. I had an idea, but honestly, by the end, I don't know.
1: I think she is, isn't she?
3: If you were to tell me that, I would say, yeah, that sounds reasonable. No, what I was going to say about the music is so the piece of music that they are preparing for the concert that, uh, the girl Anna is going to play the piano and then there's the singer. It's, um, it's a piece from Schubert's, uh, Vinteracy, which is a cycle of poems about a young man who bemoans that his love has denied him and instead chosen a rich suitor at her parents' request. And so when she talks about Schubert as this ugly, tragic figure who basically sublimated all of his, you know, horrible, uh, you know, feelings into this beautiful art, I feel like that's the worldview that she moves forward with as an artist. And that's kind of what motivates her and what, what gives uh, credence to all the suffering that she's had in life. And then when Walter comes in and he kind of is able to express Schubert's profound frustration about love. But interestingly, some of my uh, I think it's really cool how Michael Haneke implements these shots of how anytime there's any other women, they're always looking at Walter. They're always checking him out. When uh, the hockey team goes uh, onto the skating rink and the ice skaters who are women exit the skating rink, you know he says something to them and they giggle. There's also a time when he's watching Anna's recital and there's these two girls behind him and he looks behind, gives them a little smirk and the girls are giggling. You can tell that all the girls want to be with this guy. And so this guy who seemingly never had to deal with any kind of sexual rejection because not only does he got looks, but he's got money can play shoe bear and can speak to that profound feeling. You know, that doesn't like that just fucks with her worldview. And, and that's why I get why she's so hesitant to bring him in or why she wants to reject him so much. Cause this guy is literally throwing her worldview into a loop.
0: And the way that she reacts against Anna. So Anna, who you could almost say as a younger form of herself, but rather than showing Anna any sort of empathy at all, she is just exploiting her and attacking her weakness and just doing all these things. And she seems to be almost Well, she is. She's jealous of Anna. Anna is going to be playing in this uh, trio, and that's eventually what undoes Erica, and especially when she has made Anna so nervous that she can't perform, and then Walter takes pity on her and tries to bolster her confidence, talk to her, and actually be like a real human human being to her. And that's what causes – erica to go out and smash this glass and put it inside of anna's pocket so that when she reaches into her pocket she's going to slice her hand open and it's of course it's funny because she's told anna before you know to work on her left hand and i think that's the hand that ends up getting sliced in the pocket but like i said she could be nice to this girl but instead she's doing everything to undo her and it's such a Tragedy, uh, tragic figure to see the way that Anna just suffers through the entire film. She's got diarrhea at one point and she doesn't want to go up on stage. She ends up getting her hands sliced open and then uh, Erica is going to be the one to take her place. So it's just, it's, it's almost that showgirls kind of thing where she, you know, is pushing Gina Gershon down the stairs, you know, whoops, uh, now I get to be the star. And here she is jealous of this girl who's probably not even 18 years old. That
3: moment, super important. I mean, up until that point, I think you could have looked at Erica as a bit of a victim. But after that point, you know, you kind of hate her because poor fucking Anna. Anna is just seems like the sweetest girl who tries so hard and is just entirely dedicated. And God, every time I see that scene, I'm just like,
0: Anna, Erica, you fuck. Suddenly, Erica becomes uh, Tanya Harding.
3: Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: Then it's kind of a laugh line, though, when uh, Anna cuts her hand and Erica looks over and she's just like, oh, the sight of blood makes me ill. And she rushes off <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I don't think it makes you ill since you were just cutting yourself like the night or two nights before. I I think you're okay with blood and you're probably pretty happy that Anna is now suffering.
3: Yeah, so fucked.
0: And then again, we have that whole idea of the high art of this classical music being contrasted with some very low places and we have, I mean, this is the the poster image and this was always a very confusing thing for me when I first saw the poster or the DVD or the VHS tape back in the day was where the hell is this taking place? And the poster image is, it's a beautiful shot inside of a restroom and Erica has gone in to kind of hide from the world and Walter comes in and there's one stall that's closed and he looks up over it so again we have this kind of voyeuristic thing going on she might be peeing she might not i'm not really sure what she's doing in there but this turns into their first sex session i guess you i mean there's sex going on in here but it's not necessarily the most there's passion at first Right? And they're kissing and they're making out and they're doing this kind of stuff of, you know, all this unbridled feelings that they've had for each other are going at it. And then it turns quickly into this whole game of control where Erica is exerting control finally over something. And Walter's not necessarily too happy about it, though he kind of is at times, especially when she's performing some fellatio on him. But then she stops. And so, again, exerting control on the situation.
1: Here's the thing that I think this film does a good job of portraying that I don't think a lot of things do a very good job of portraying, especially a lot of mainstream stuff involving like BDSM and sub and dom relationships, is that the preconceived notion is that the sub and the relationship essentially relinquishes all power to the dominant. In this film, Erica is the sub in the later parts of the film she writes that letter to him detailing everything she wants him to do to her and in this scene you kind of see how the preconceived notion about the sub being the one not in power isn't really the case because she still wants him to be dominant in this scene but she takes away all of his power over and over again while still trying to be the sub to his dominant and it's really interesting because you have films out there like, you know, the garbage that is Fifty Shades of Grey that refuses to paint those kinds of relationships in a way that's realistic. And it's – it kind of takes apart what a lot of – I mean, there's a there's a healthy community in the United States and in the world that are into those kinds of things. And so, it's refreshing to see a film actually give – the community and this kind of relationship a more realistic spin as opposed to oh well the sub and the dom the sub has all the power taken away and Erica has a fair amount of power in the entire film up until the, the very end and even you could make the case and at the end of the film she still does but it's really refreshing to see in this scene
0: her stopping him over and over again
1: while he thinks that he's the one that's in control
0: well, after she gives him that letter, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, she's really trying to, as I say in the community, top from the bottom, because it's just this whole like, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, and you need to call me these names, and you need to do this, and just, like, outlining everything in the smallest detail for him, where it's just like, you know, you can't do this one, but you can do this, and I want you to do this, and da-da-da-da-da. And it's just like, okay, lady, who's in charge here? Is he in charge? Not really. You're in charge. I mean, there's the whole idea of submission versus passivity. She is... She is not passive in this, and if anything, she's almost too aggressive in her submission, if that makes any sense. She's just like, no, you're going to do this. No, you're going to listen to me say this. Like She won't relinquish that control. She is still the piano teacher even when she is supposed to be in this submissive role.
3: Since you're mentioning that scene, I, I wanted to ask you guys, so you know how she brings out that box and in the box, she's got all that S&M gear that we can assume she's never used. How long do you think she's had that box? Do you think she just got all those things? Has she, been, has she had this desire of festering in her for years and she finally is in the appropriate mental space to share this fantasy with somebody? What do you guys think?
1: I think that she's had the box for a lot of years and she leaves it under her bed and looks at it longingly. From time to time and possibly cuts herself thinking about it. This film has a lot of themes of repression and repressing one's sexuality, either forcibly or, you know, doing it yourself. And so, I mean, again, I feel like, again, with the cutting, with the box of the BDSM toys underneath her bed, I think this is a long time coming, no pun
3: intended. What do you think about Walter made her decide that this is the one, this is the guy I'm going to reveal my fantasy to?
1: Well, I mean, like you guys said about the actress who plays Erica, um, Isabella Huppert, She, she – I don't want to say she looks frumpy in this film, but they have downplayed her beauty substantially. And I think that they're trying to make us feel and – Recognize that apparently it's been hard for her to find anyone who's interested in her, let alone anyone who would even field the ideas that she is really obsessed with. And I, you know, as much as I do applaud this film for talking about things like, you know, the BDSM community and the and the dominant sub relationship. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that's I would say a little kind of offensive in a way that the idea that someone could only be into that kind of sexual behavior and that's sexually deviant because they've been repressed and that the repression of your sexuality leads to these kinds of quote unquote deviant thoughts is a little odd. But you know, back to your question, I think that this is a, a long time coming for her and now she's finally reached the point where it's, I guess just a confluence of all the right things at the wrong time with the wrong person being Walter.
3: Yeah. And more to your point, I think that's a great point that, yeah, we're meant to believe that because she's had this inappropriate, repressive relationship with her mother, that's kind of turned her into this uh, kind of disabled and so like emotionally disabled human being. Then she uh goes to this BDSM thing.
0: I imagine this is the first time that Erica has ever had anyone in her room other than her mother and her mother. Her mother is in control. I talked about keys and doors and locks and, and rooms and everything before. Her mother is in control of the keys. Her mother has access to every part of the room of the house, but Erica does not, And or I should say apartment. And it's a big deal that Erica has invited in a man and is in he's in this room that she has to use a dresser to block the door so mother doesn't come in and the the way that her mother is outside just stalking around it's like a it's it's like when you you put like a a treat inside of a cage and you've got the dog outside and just pacing back and forth just staring at that treat the entire time that's the way that the mom is just moving back and forth back and forth drinking all the time and just so you know, a Twitter that, that there's someone in the house and someone is in there with Erica because mom is so afraid of losing control over Erica. I read once that, um, Haneke, I think it was Haneke said that, uh, it's almost like this is a relationship between the mother and Walter and Erica is like the phallus that there's this whole idea of that. The mother actually wants Walter, but, uh, uh and uses Erica to get to him in a way but I don't necessarily buy that but it's just this whole idea of the mom just being so upset that there's somebody in the house and somebody that she can't control. We talked about Black Swan a little
1: bit. This movie also has shades of Carrie with the mother's relationship towards her daughter in regards to like her sexuality being like dirty. And she says like you're right what are you going to run a brothel out of this house? Like, look, she had a guy in her room and they – there's not even – you don't even have any proof that they were doing anything sexual. Yet, all of a sudden, it's you're going to run a brothel out of our house and you're dirty and this is, you know, I hope you know what you're doing and da-da-da-da-da-da. It just goes on and on. And she's, you know, bemoaning her daughter's, like we've said, sexuality and her interest in anyone And again, that's very much Shades of Carrie, where, you know, Carrie's mother is like a complete control freak. And she's talking about, you know, the how in Carrie, it's more religious angle than in this film, where it's just a mother being controlling. So again, very much Shades of Black Swan, Shades of Carrie. And again, it's one of those relationships where it's really unsettling to watch. To your point,
3: yeah, so Carrie's mother was like a religious zealot, but I think that Erica's mother is a zealot of kind of a different kind, but she's all about status. She's like this aspirational aristocrat who wants to – who nothing matters more than – uh, projecting this image onto the old guard of music that, you know, they are one of them, you know, that they deserve to be in the high society of classical music. And so if that means bringing a young boy into the house, you know, that that is not uh, becoming of someone of such status. So, you know, she's just yeah, she's like a zealot about class.
0: And I feel for Erica so much at this point, because she gave she took so much time, you know, at one point, Walter grabs this letter and he's just like wow this is really weighty like how long did it take her to write this right and then for her to spend so much time to pour out all of these feelings these fantasies that she's probably had for decades into this he doesn't take the time to read the letter On his own, which is what she asked him to do. Instead, he starts to read it in front of her. And then as he's reading it, he's just tearing her down and not in the way that she wants, right? And that's the, that's one of the great things about this, this movie is there's this whole idea of, you know, she wants to be humiliated, belittled, controlled, all of these things, but she wants it done in a way that satisfies her. And one of the things that I find the most fascinating is that when she's talking to him and trying to lay out like listen, I'll I'll be, you know, you're submissive, I'll do the, all this stuff for you and she goes over to her closet and she's like, You can choose what I wear and I'm just like, wow, she's kind of replacing one control system with her mother with another control system which is Walter because mom has to approve everything that erica wears has to approve every piece of clothing that even comes into the house and here she wants walter now to go ahead pick out what i wear and that's just like the most supplicating thing that she can possibly do for walter is like you can dress me you can have me wear whatever you want me to wear and i just i feel so bad when he's just laughing at her and belittling her and all of these desires that she's had for so long. And she, again, I guess going to this dog metaphor that I just had with this dog in a a treat in a cage, the way that she lays down on the floor and, you know, does like that dog thing where it's like, belly up, you know, just I'm here, I'm available, you can tear into me if you want. But you know, I I am submitting myself to you. And he just wants nothing to do with it.
3: I've got another question for you guys. That's similar to the question I asked before. But do you guys think that she wrote the letter then for him? Or did she write this letter years ago, waiting to give it to someone special?
1: I think she wrote it for him. Again, that that the the thing I, I I mentioned before where I said it was the the right things that she wanted, but for the wrong person and the wrong reason. I think she wrote it for him, but I think she had it in her head for a very long time. And when we when we look at the character of Walter, he is I mean, he is for all intents and purposes, we're never told his age, but it's very clear that he is, like, a child, like a teenager, like, emotionally immature, to the point where he thinks that the way maybe a teenager thinks that, like, a BDSM relationship is, like, kicking someone in the face so hard you break their nose. Like, that's what he thinks she wants at the end of the film. And... That, I mean, I mean, there probably are people out there. I don't want to discredit that, that there probably are people out there that like that. But it's very clear that the character that she is portraying in the film is not wanting him to do anything that isn't, you know, I would say it's on the farther end of the spectrum towards sexual prowess and maybe, you know, m- more sexually explicit than a lot of people do in their daily life. But it's, it, it goes to show that. She has been waiting for someone to come along and jumped at the first opportunity regardless of who it was. And this this kid's age and emotional maturity gets in the way of her being able to really enjoy herself and find that person that she wants to be with sexually to the point where she writes this letter to him and he acts like a teenager reading it, spitting it back in her face. Making light of something that she very takes very seriously, and again, it's just uh, you know props to Henicky and and the actor who portrays Walter and Isabella who pair for that scene where he's reading that letter, being just insanely
0: uncomfortable and really upsetting. Yeah, I don't know if she wrote that beforehand or not that is a very good question i mean she might have had all that stuff written down on her fetlife profile but i don't think so what do you have written down on your fetlife profile mike
3: so you guys interpret that when he comes to her house at the end and basically abuses her he's not doing it right i guess when i watched it i was almost so do you guys know uh Slavoj Zizek, the philosopher that talks about movies sometimes, he made The Pervert's Guide to Cinema. He talks about this movie. And in his interpretation, and he's a Lacanian psychoanalysis or psychoanalyst, and uh, his interpretation is basically that the ultimate nightmare is that when you actually have your fantasies fulfilled, and then that's what happens at the end of the movie for uh, for Erica, is that uh, when he does actually do what she wants him to do, she's kind of left essentially with this feeling of emptiness after having her fantasy fulfilled and now there's nothing for her. And that's why she stabs herself at the end. I don't know if I necessarily buy that, but um, I guess I hadn't really thought of it as, you know, she's asking for something that is uh, common within certain communities and he's just immature and messing it up.
0: Yeah. The thing about this movie that I like so much is that I can go either way. I can think of it as he's trying to fulfill her fantasy and doing a spectacular fuck up of it. Or I can think of it as he is so turned around in his head. You know, he makes that line about, uh, I was out in the bushes jerking off thinking of you. And it's just like, okay, is he just so hot to trot right now? And so turned on and so not knowing how to express himself with this woman that he's he basically ends up raping her, that he has no emotional maturity to himself, and that he does this. And maybe in his mind, he thinks that he's fulfilling her fantasy. Or, or is this a fantasy? Is this a dream? I mean, the way that he reacts at the end when he f- sees her at the, uh, uh the, the auditorium, the way that the mother is just seems to be okay with things the next day. I mean, it's, there are times where i think that this was this was the part that was in her head i mean we have so much of you know her in bed with her mother that whenever i see a character in bed i always wonder like is the next scene going to be a dream or not and you know there is a lot of a lot of sexual stuff after she gets into bed with her mother after that letter reading scene, and she basically attacks her mother, uh, in a very sexual way. And then that weird line that she says, like, "I saw the hairs on your sex." Yeah, so weird. Talk about Dr. Freud again. I mean, we can talk about the whole idea of the lack of a penis and stuff. Is just like, wow, okay, you know, the the mom again. The mom holds all the keys, right? And you can think of all those the the keys as being the phallus and the key being her way to get around the house and have her access to anything that she wants. And that's also an, an interesting thing that when Erica writes that letter to Walter, that she says, I want you to take all the keys, you know, even my mother's key. I want you to take all the keys. And it's just like, oh, okay, kind of like disarming her mother of all of that power.
1: I take a hardline stance. I think that he is too immature, and like I, I've said before, I think that I think that's pretty clear to some extent. I mean, again, like I find his character in the film to be absolutely reprehensible. So, I mean, it's I'm not I'm I'm going to come down on one side as opposed to the other. At what point, though?
3: At what point does he become reprehensible?
0: Is it when he kicks her in the face and she bleeds? Is
3: it just during that last scene?
0: Up until that point, I mean, it's pretty much just a.
1: Older woman, younger man flirting and fooling around. I mean, yeah, the scene in the hockey locker room where she's giving him a blowjob and she vomits up. There's a Japanese slang called Kenja Taimu, which is like, to explain it as not crass as humanly possible, it's the moment where you're free from sexual desires after you orgasm and it applies directly to a man. We're men, so we've all been there, if you understand what I mean. And so a lot of what happens in the later parts of the film feels like he's being driven by a immature sense of sexuality that he doesn't understand how to react to or deal with. And so he meets a woman who's fostering this, a more kind of mature sexuality that people at his age probably don't deal with. And so – He gets to the point where she has been leading him along so much that he snaps. And because, again, she's expecting something from him that he is not really able to really comprehend. I mean, she's wanting to do some really hardcore BDSM if if her letter is to be believed that that's exactly what she wants. So at the end of the film, when he uh, effectively rapes her on the floor, before that he kicks her in the face, it feels like a lot of just really – an inability on his part to understand what she wants and an immaturity on his part to be able to like understand it. He's just disgusted by it. And so he takes his disgust out on her because he's disgusted that she would want that from him. And he's also disgusted that she would even think that he would be interested in doing that with her.
3: But one of the things we've been talking about, how this is a film about someone who's emotionally in arrested development. So although I agree with you that if we were to believe that Erica is a like, you know, a, an adult with a capable mind who decides that I want to go into BDSM, then I think that you'd be right. But are we to believe that she is even emotionally mature enough to know what she wants?
0: I don't think that she knows very much about sex at all. And that what she knows is what she sees in those porn films or what she sees when she's a voyeuress and out amongst the cars in the drive-in theater, watching people having sex inside of their cars. I don't think that she's had any experience with these things and that she is just probably built up this fantasy library of things that she's seen in movies or thought about or read or something. She does not strike me as someone who actually wants the things that are inside of that letter that she gives him. And that could be me being a really horrible person and discounting someone's fantasies or their desires. But that's my feeling is that When she even starts giving him a blowjob in the bathroom with their first sexual encounter, the first thing that came through my head was, well, she just watched someone give a blowjob in that porn film. This is probably what she knows. She knows that men are supposed to enjoy this. This looks interesting to her. You know, It might not be the enjoyment thing. It might be the, this looks interesting. Let's try it. I'm surprised that she didn't completely do it up like the porn film and get on her back so the guy could. face that way though there is some face fucking in this i thought that there was actual fucking fucking after the in the hockey scene i didn't realize that there was face fucking going on until she ended up spitting up the cum and i was like oh okay that's what was going on and then again he tries to degrade her and starts talking about how she stinks and all this stuff and it's just like this seems to be like BDSM 101 like the beginners class where it's just like wow you stink you should move out of town because you stink so much and it's just like are you trying to degrade her like a fantasy or are you really feeling this way
1: I go back to what I said before it's a it's a child he's a child for fuck's sake it's it's like oh you smell it's like oh good lord like you you don't you don't really have any notion as to what she wants and to be fair i would agree she doesn't really know what she wants either she's been taught sex by
3: porn and either way she's still a victim of her mother
1: but again like there i mean there are studies shown that people who learn about sex through pornography have like and i mean to some extent i mean if you think about it have a im not improper but ill-advised view of what sex will be when you have it versus what people in pornography are having with one another. Also, I- I'd like to point out, Mike, that uh, talking about puking up cum, welcome to the projection booth, folks. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the levels of shit that we've talked about on this podcast already would make me blush even on my own podcast.
0: I'm very curious about what some of the next generations are going to be like that have been exposed to Quote unquote free porn on the internet pretty much since they were kids. I mean, I just saw a short film and I wish I could remember the name of it. I saw it at the Chicago Underground Film Festival and it was by this, this young lady who she makes games and she does all these other things. And she's just like, Oh yeah, I've grown up with Pornhub. And I'm just like, my God, how, yeah, I guess you're old enough to have grown up with Pornhub. How can that? How does that affect you as a person that that is your exposure to pornography for so long? I mean, when I was growing up, pornography was very difficult to find, and now it's very easy to find how does that affect you. There's probably been tons of studies. I mean, I, from what I understand, anal sex is very, very, very prevalent now amongst the youth because that was right at the top of the alphabetical list. So like anal and Asians were right there near the top of the list. Jesus Christ, Mike.
1: (laughs) Okay, hold on. So I, I, uh, and if you've listened to either my podcast or or the Projection Booth before and I've been on, or you've listened to Mike and I's collaboration podcast, Colchak Tapes, you're welcome for that slick plug. You know that I am much younger than Mike. Jared, I don't know how old you are. I'm 30. Okay, so you're two years older than I am. I grew up with online pornography and being able to, I mean, I had a computer when I was like, 10 or 12. So I was able to go and look at porn online. I mean, we didn't have Pornhub, but there was free pornography online. And I mean, I would shudder to think that it didn't affect my sexual proclivities in one way or another. And I think that the generational way that people consume pornography and are exposed to sexuality and sex does shape their ideas about what sex is and what it can be and what it will be. I mean back in the day, geez, Playboy, they didn't even show the a woman's labia. It was it was, I mean, completely it was hair. And that's not a thing anymore. I mean, go I mean, now a woman who has a a a vagina with hair on it, that's that's a fetish. That's fetish porn now. And it's just surprising to see the way that Pornography changes with the times, but also changes the times and the proclivities of the people that are watching it. But yeah, anal now is like not even an issue. I mean that that used to be something that was taboo, and now any porn site you go to, if you don't do anal as a porn star, I'm sure your viability and visibility drops fifty percent, I'm sure. so again, it's it's the changing times and as someone who grew up with pornography, I think it's given me a broader sense of what I like and what I don't like and probably a deeper kind of interest in certain things that prior generations probably had zero to very little exposure to and were probably chastised for even wanting to have any exposure to it, i.e. Erica in this film, her interest in BDSM, which again is a product of being repressed by her mother. But again, BDSM in this day and age, Fifty Shades of Grey is mainstream. Their moms reading this book about this. It's a piece of shit. Okay. So I really don't even want to explain the fucking movie, but the fact that BDSM is mainstream now, BDSM, I put in quotations because I, I know. And you guys know that that's not what BDSM is. That is like BDSM through the lens of someone who has no idea what they're doing, but wanted to have sex with a teenage vampire. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. It does change your sexual behavior and and what you look for sexually
3: i mean i've come to a point in my life where i just have accepted that all images have a profound effect on how we view life you know like all the violent video games i played when i was a kid all the movies i've seen i mean do i think they've made me a bad person no but i'm no longer under the illusion that they haven't affected me i think they absolutely have
1: yeah and and again the whole does violent video games make you Uh, a psychopath or is or is music using like racial pejoratives or uh derogatory language which by the way someone thinking that the word fucking shit or derogatory in this day and age is absolutely ridiculous but again the fact that people think that that is a thing that like it it adversely affects you it does affect you but it it can be adversely or positively it's kind of from person to person so i mean I, i i agree with you it's It is ridiculous to think that it doesn't affect you, but it's not necessarily negatively. I mean, some of the best movie directors now have been affected by the films that they watched as kids. I mean, there's interviews with Guillermo del Toro talking about how he was in the theater watching The Thing and The Fly and Total Recall. And those films shaped who he is as a director now. And without films like, like those films, we would never have gotten Guillermo del Toro and his eye for film so there's a positive reaction to what he was watching as a kid as a teenager in his formative years
3: yeah so since we're talking about desire and media and stuff like that and since hey we're already a little bit off topic I just just, yeah like the thing that the thing that I've kind of come across is that I really think that media whether it's video games TV it has definitely influenced people's desires you know and and when you see things on the internet like incels and stuff like that I always talk about how like you know, yes, there are a lot of toxic things about that community, but at the same time, I do think that there is a whole generation of people whose, whose almost subconscious, now conscious, uh, desires have been programmed into them. Um, so I think that's one negative thing that at least I've been reflecting on recently.
0: Yeah, the last time I had my desires programmed into me, my chest opened up like a big vagina and somebody stuck a VHS tape inside of me.
3: Oh, fuck yeah, Videodrome. It's oh one of my, my favorite God. movies. Marshall Hell yeah. Marshall
1: McLuhan, dude, he had no idea what he was talking about. I'm with Brian you Oblivion, here. you mean? Sure, yeah, okay. Marshall McLuhan, Brian Oblivion. Sure, whatever. As far as that film is concerned, they're the same person. That is one of the greatest films ever made.
3: That's one of the, actually the favorite, my favorite episodes we've done on our podcast, <laughs> Show Me the Meaning, which you should definitely check out.
1: We're all here, we're all podcasters, and we all love Videodrome. That must say something about us. Because one of my favorite episodes we've done on my podcast was Videodrome. Because it's similar to this film in a way. That it gets you talking about a topic that's important in this day and age. I mean, this film is not that old. I say that, but fuck, this film is 17 years old. It was made in 2001 if, if, you wanna, if you're my age and you want to feel old. But it talks about stuff that's important now. And it's 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 pressing, and it's a pressing issue, and it's an important issue to people now, similarly to Videodrome, which talks about the way we consume media and the way media affects us, and the way that people affect the media in turn. I mean, I know Mike probably doesn't want me to bring this up, but those certain subset of fans of a certain franchise who have gone out of their way to make certain people associated with said franchise – Miserable.
3: As soon as I'm done on this podcast, we're actually talking about this on my podcast. So.
1: It's this relationship where you can see it in this film, where her belief about what sex and um, intimate intimacy should be, uh, not only affects who she is and what she wants, but then it also affects Walter. You're you're supposed to believe it affects him, but then you look at the end of the film and. He seemingly shirks off any responsibility that, or or feeling or anything. And again, we're not really able to see what happened to him after he left, but we're led to believe with the way the film ends that he is a complete and utter either sociopath or, again, just an immature teenager who can't seem to process what he just did to someone else.
3: And not only that, but if we're meant to believe that it's not a fantasy and even the end when the way that he addresses her just so nonchalantly, that's one of the most horrible things. And I think one of the things that really makes her stab herself at the end is that, like, you know, I literally just either shattered this woman's fantasy or scarred her for life or, you know, something. And I'm able to just brush it off like it's all good. You know,
0: if the gender roles in this movie were flipped. Suddenly, we woke up tomorrow and the piano teacher is about this older man and this younger woman kind of thing. First, that would be very uncomfortable, but if this was flipped, I could see that older man at the end of this not stabbing himself, but taking out an AK 47 and just leveling everybody at that concert hall. I mean, this is the kind of what you're talking about with like incels and just the, the, this whole idea of the violence and not understanding, not knowing how to express yourself. If this was a man at the end, He wouldn't be stabbing himself. He would be stabbing someone else or he would be murdering someone else. But it is so interesting that she chooses to express herself by stabbing herself in the shoulder. And that look on her face, that look on her face is fucking crazy. And I love that look. It takes me aback every single time I watch this to see that because she just has this – This mania on her face. Someone described it. I was reading an article and somebody described it like a like an angry horse is how they said it. I was like, what? I've interpreted this different ways. This
3: time I watched it, I interpreted that she stabbed herself because she said to herself, you she's talking to herself. You fucked up. You revealed yourself to somebody you let your emotions take hold and this guy is basically just a horrible person and like you know because earlier b- before she said uh, I don't have emotions and if I did my intelligence is too strong to let them happen and she let her guard down she took a chance on this guy and he spat on her face and now she's just like masochistically disappointed in herself she stabs herself because fuck you for having emotions
1: The way I interpret it is, and this is something that I think the film does a little intentionally, is juxtaposing Erica and Anna against one another. And the way I interpreted it was, Erica puts the glass in Anna's coat. And there's a line in the film that, that Anna's mom says, which is, she may not ever recover. And Erica looks at that. Probably, again, I don't know. This is the way I interpret it as she set Anna free to some extent from her mother and kind of the expectations and constraints that were being placed on her by her mother and going to practice and trying to be the best at piano. And the way I interpreted the end of the film with that in mind is she stabs herself, setting herself free from everything that's come up into this point. Her mother, Walter... The kind of the the way she was perceiving her sexuality and and expectations. And she stabs herself and sets herself free. Similarly to the way she sets Anna free by placing the glass in her coat. And she sets herself free like she set Anna free. Because at the end of the film, you see Anna and she's happy and smiling. Unlike the way you've seen her at the beginning of the film and the other scenes of the film. She sets herself free similarly to the way she set someone else free. And that's a little bit more of like a positive spin on the ending of the film in a way. I mean, she still stabs herself and almost stabs herself in the heart. But it's a more of a positive spin, which with Haneke, I mean, good luck ever having a positive ending in the film. So probably my interpretation is completely off of base.
3: It doesn't just end after she stabs herself. It she stabs herself and then she walks away from the concert. She's not going to go perform Schubert. And I think that that's also really important to your point that she's now—is she walking away from the life of music? Is that what we're meant to believe that that represents?
1: Uh, also, Mike, you mentioned incels. Uh, if you if you don't know what Mike's talking about with incels, you should watch the documentary. uh I'm gonna say on YouTube, but there's a documentary on YouTube called "Shy Boys IRL," which is in real life. And if you've never seen it, it's uh, yeah, it's it would be what this film is flipped, and it's it's a fantastic. You're gonna make me watch that. You, You should. It's like 30 minutes long, but it is it is really an interesting look at a subset of culture that I think is misunderstood in a way. And rightfully so, because of certain things that have happened in society, but also very cringy and very kind of hard to watch.
0: All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with cinematographer Christian Berger, and we'll be back with that after these brief messages. I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her Cocker Spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available. Anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle?
4: Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema, and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, Cult and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website cinemadetroit.org for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201.
5: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode... P A T R E O N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's twelve dollars a year. At least fifty great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
3: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection
0: Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Protection Booth are talking about good
3: party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema, come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday.
0: Why cinematography? Did you ever director or actor or just no no? You, said the, you
6: know, in that age or when you start, it's filming, filmmaking. Mm. It was uh, everything in one. So uh, that that came later, but it was quite soon. It was clear that my main interest are images and to uh, find metaphors in images to. To, I trusted images always more than words or or the language. And then you know how it is in any life. You, a mixture from lucky circumstance and uh, stubborn intentions, and then it runs.
0: The early films that you worked on, what were those like? I mean, were they primarily Austrian films or did you have to go out of the country?
6: The going out of the country, it's easy to say, but who was waiting for me? So it, mm. it made not much sense. And in Germany, it was not much better the situation. I could start to work with the with the first camera I, I, I earned. I could uh, start as a news gathering so for the for the Austrian uh, television stations, and I was uh, for a good ten years uh, working as a You know, to to make to be journalist and to make the the uh, filming. It was black and white. It was uh, reversal film. That time was end of sixty, and I started like that. And after two three years, I could. uh, It was growing very fast, and I had a few crews. And then after another few years, I knew that it's not what I want to (laughs) do in the future. And with each money which. Could be which I could put on the side, We we make we made a little film. Uh, we made little films and so. No, it, it was a good time, a good learning, a bit long maybe. I did over three thousand um, reportage and about two hundred hours on documentary. But till the mid of eighties, that was a good school. That kind of documentary school is very very important. I saw it with colleagues which, which are, which were growing up in the studios. Uh, they miss a lot of things from my point of view. And especially to see the light without a lamp in your, in the, in the luggage, you know, to see just the light. You really learn that with documentaries to be at the right point and the right time to have the best light. Uh, things like that I learned really with that practice, to practice that many years. Uh, so work for TV stations. But of course, you have to take care to become not cynical or alcoholist. I knew a few examples. It came both. I hope I could avoid it.
0: You talked but. about making uh, shorts. What were those early shorts like? For example, with the young musician
6: uh, of that time. Uh, It was too. then, in in combination with TV work, uh, I learned uh, a lot of redactors, they were interested in alternative uh, projects, if I can say so, or I did it just for myself. It came out much later, for example, Landleben, Country Life, it's called. It was a film I shot between 1773 and in 95. I did a, a copy from it only at that time. Because when I was shooting it, nobody was interested. And suddenly I had the prize for new cinema (laughs) at the Biennale (laughs) in '95. Yeah, so it's quite funny. And other uh, so kind of experimental films for myself. I was not thinking of an audience, and anyway, there was no distribute. Uh, uh, Maybe you find the cinema with friends there; they were showing it, and that
0: was it. Can you tell me a, a bit about Raffle? How did that come to be?
6: that was later so uh, i mean what i said now was beginning of 70s mm-hmm. and after was then the beginning of the film found in austria uh, so i had a chance to get some money uh, it was a very low budget film but nevertheless you need money and it was I remember with actors it was a, a small independent uh, production and it was uh, Quite lucky or happy constellation of personalities with the with the Loïs Weinberger. He played the Raffel, or my assistant from that time, Markus Herzl. So suddenly we came on the research from that historical figure, and we wanted to do something, uh, of course, which uh, should match the time we lived in. Not not uh, we were not interested to make a historical thing. And I think it came out, and it was a surprise for all of us that we could achieve uh, Cannes and uh, a lot of festivals. It was even sold in a few countries. So that was the beginning of To Make Own Movies. But it was a group work, if I can say so. And from my point of view, I could really uh, be a little radical in the with the images seen from that time. It's funny because just today came a group of five students from the film academy in Vienna. They wanted to make oral history, called it oral history. We spoke a lot about (laughs) Raffi. It was a kind of anti-frust. Of course, I was frustrated with TV work, with work by order, but I never, I was never sour about that situation because I accepted the, the chance to make to film nearly every day with the TV work was at least uh, you learn your, your skills and your tools. And uh, uh, I had a lot of colleagues that oh, that's a dirty work, I don't do it. And they sit still today in a, in a cafe and plan something which is never realized. So uh, I feel privileged to have that story behind me, it's just, or to do that way. From time to time, a need to jump in the cold water, how we say, uh um, and you need, of course, you need luck. But if you're not ready for the luck, it never comes. So
0: You've worked many, many times with Michael Haneke over the years. And I'm curious, when did you first meet him and what was that initially like? We know each other from the
6: end of 80s. And he came to me uh, with his first cinema project, The uh, Seventh Continent. But I was just shooting my own project uh, in that time, Hannah the Darling, so I could not do it. And then the first, uh, film, war. and then he came because of Raffle, because he saw Raffle and he liked it very much. And that was our contact. He did before a lot of TV work, uh, but it was to his first movie that seven continent. And, uh, Benny's video was my first collaboration and it was his second film. Yeah. And from then on, yeah, now we are, we have six films together.
0: I'm always fascinated by people who work together again and again, and I'm curious what kind of working relationship you guys have, have worked out over the years.
6: It's difficult to say because uh, it, it's not easy to work with Hanik, or maybe not with me either, I don't know. But it was sometimes kind of never again and then again and never again and then again. Now that's kind of over and but what stays is that I really respect and love his way of uh, radicality uh, to be, you know, consequent, stringent and uh, minimalistic. Uh, his, uh, he, uh, he writes the best scripts I know. The last script from Happy End was, I don't know, 80 pages uh, for 110 minutes. And you it's not one word too much, not one uh, image too much, you know, that... I really love it. It's a, it's a great work, and it's his handwriting, and it's it was very similar to mine, to my intentions. So, and we never need to discuss that kind of things. We discuss technical problems. We make tests if we don't, we are not sure about. I don't know, a wallpaper will be good or not, or something like that. Very simple things. But artistically, uh, uh, I feel very well with him, and I hope he feels well with me too. But you have to ask him that. Sir.
0: Can you tell me about the uh, invention and the details of the Cinema reflect lighting system? By the end of, of the 90s, I was really
6: frustrated from my job. Not because of Hanneke work, I mean, but in general, uh, because I could never achieve... In in feature films, I could not achieve the lightness and uh, uh, the beauty of natural light, which I know from document documentaries. Hmm. I always I always felt there's a, a projector or a lamp, and there's a lamp, and I hated that. I always wanted that the actor lights, you know, the face face lights or the landscape, whatever, but not the lamp. I could see even with very expensive uh, American productions, I could tell you they use that and they use that. This is boring. It's not what what I was interested in. Uh, Then I had a contact uh, with a a light engineer, with architects, in in, in short, with people who had a different access to lighting problems. Architects and painters was maybe the most important things. And suddenly, I could see how antiquated we are in 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 our branch with the in the film industry. Of course, you have singular personalities they don't they they know what they do, but the standard is really very, very conservative and light is so rich and it's such a large uh, subject It's not only to put the lamp on this corner and then the other corner uh and what you could see in the in the books or, or the rules, if I can say so, was ridiculous. is uh, really boring and and uh, kind of not stupid, but yeah, very boring. Then I find the new access via that contact with other people, with not from the film industry. They saw how it was possible to uh, to bring light in other places, you know, to to have. Uh, in the architect, architecture it was a lot of solutions there, and I said, Oh, but that result is great. Why we cannot achieve that result? Very clear, very transparent images, no, not only based on effects. You know, now we put 18 KV in front of a window, a little smoke, and we say great light. Uh, That's, that was never my, my thing. It was not my taste, and I don't believe in it. I wanted to have it. Natural but crea- uh, created not not one to one what nature makes, but if you observe light or at the end, I came to the point first to check all the literature and you own in the religions you have light is a, a, a important uh, matter or in philosophy, in literature everywhere, painting anyway, so I find uh, or could decide to say what. To, to try to find out what a light a single light beam does if he comes into a room. and uh, from that natural observation, if I can say so, I just created that system very simple. I, I try to do the same like that, I can achieve very organic light distributions and the very uh, for example, to make a soft light with our conventional methods, that means you you put the yogurt sauce above the whole set. I can say so. So you lose modulation, you lose contrast, then you have to put other lights extra to, to win that back, so you have wrong shadows, and on and on. Now with that system, I can bring in the light from outside most of the time, and have a, a soft light, but with punch. You don't lose the modulation in the face, and you can create a lot of effects, if like, I can, Light distributions, which are conventionally done, very, very time-consuming, expensive, take a lot of space, disturbs the director, the actors, you know that kind of technical dictate. I was always against it. So that's that was my answer for that, and the rest was just uh, it's not so easy to <laughs> to find somebody who produces you that, who distributes it, and and so on. And uh, that's now on a, on a quite good way. But it's 15 years ago. Then, no, I started even longer. I started first time with the, but only a little, so kind of tests in the piano teacher with that light system. But from then on, in all my work, I used more or less only that, except for special effects where it makes no sense. My goal was to protect the beauty of natural light and to be able to reproduce it under complete control. And then you are free to create your own atmospheres, whatever you want. It's not, it's not a document uh, because many pe- it's a mistake. Many people think oh, it's only a kind of documentary uh, light. It's not at all. Uh, you can create what you want. But I steal from the nature, if I can say so.
0: Do you have any uh, particular memories of the shoot up for the piano teacher? Yeah, it was funny because we shot
6: it completely in Vienna, but uh, the main language was French or English uh, because of Isabelle Hubert. Uh it was a great experience we were all a little shy because for us it was the big star comes you know Uh, it was a kind of first contact for the whole crew with a a star from that class and then she was very straight uh, not at all uh, pretentious or uh, with uh, difficult attitudes not at all Uh, and I learned a lot from her because she's very strict Concerning herself, that means each take is controlled by with a mirror, <laughs> only concerning her face, and then dump up or down. So she's she can be very hard there, uh, but it was good because uh, she she's not vanished. It's not. Uh, she said, "I'm a product. I'm a mark. I have to protect that. And if I have the wrong light, it's uh, damage." <laughs> huh.
0: I, I guess I don't understand what you mean about the mirror. How was, how was that used? She had a mirror from her, uh, makeup, uh, girl. Oh, okay. She checked herself
6: with a mirror before each take. But that was normal with her. It was not, uh, and of course she, she, she didn't know me before and, uh, but then after a while with the trust, it was over. Okay.
0: You know as the years have gone by, technology has changed so much. I mean, you've made advances in technology, and I'm curious how has that affected you? I mean, have you always shot in film or have you shot in video these days?
6: First of all, I, I don't want to overestimate the the question of tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sit with my students, uh, and I tell them sometimes, you know what take whatever has a hole in front and the glass? Before and shoot. Don't stop to discuss permanent pixels and that and that. They are slaves from the hardware industry. And every day you have a, a, a new solution for, for, uh, in fact, no problems. The most of the, of the people or, for, or the, the camera guys, or I think it concerns many departments, they discuss permanent tools and not, I want to speak about the meal. And not about the fork and the knife. And this is, it sounds easy and self-evident, but it's not. You really have to fight for that permanent. I'm used to it now. I do it all the time to fight against the technical dictate because it, it makes you blind for the more, much more important artistically questions, how to touch the audience, how you can serve the script, the director's intention, how you can Support or or protect an actor, an actress, you know that kind of things. It's has priority. Of course, it's important to know your uh, tools and uh, handicraft. It's I, I I respect that completely, but it has not to be in the first line. And in our profession, I see it very often, and it makes me really sad that eternal discussions. Uh, about what you use there and this lens and that camera, and the, that uh, it, it's important, but it's not so important. Nobody would have the idea to to say uh, about a, an author, yeah. When if you write a book and uh, I will, uh, I read the book and say, oh, you wrote it on a MacBook, bro, great. <laughs> nobody would have that idea, but in our branch, uh, it looks kind of normal. And it's the same, uh, it's the same unimportant thing. Uh, and you have many specialists anyway, more than ever. I need them anyway. You know, my DIT I need anyway. I cannot save all the data if I should digital. So, so it's better to keep your mind free and to concentrate what is your job and what, what is, do not lose the track. It's important to decide which lens and what for, but at this time this cannot be the priority. Cannot be. I think sometimes we are scared or to to go in a kind of defensive uh, position if we do that. So kind of. I'm not concerned with that problem. I take care for my lens for that everything is in focus.
0: That's ridiculous. What have been some of the most difficult things for you to shoot?
6: Uh, To find the groove with the crew. Mm-hmm. And with, uh, I mean, the groove is, uh, uh, I know it's, It's. I love it in the music, but, and, and I know that it's difficult to compare because we have so many pressures from outside. We have so many uh, obstacles, uh, production conditions, time, weather conditions, whatever. And uh, so I know it's not the same than in the music, but it would be great if it would be the same. Uh, I always try to achieve that kind of, uh, to be on the same wavelengths. Uh, and that's easy. So verbal, but I don't mean verbal. I mean really in the work that you feel everybody is on the same wave. Yeah. It's rare. But if it happens, good scenes, good results.
0: Where has it happened for you the most? Was there any particular shoot where just like this was a dream and it moved very smoothly in
6: in serious projects it's always some scenes where it's like that for example in the white ribbon it was absolutely clear we were all astonished and moved from that scene i don't know if you have it in mind if it makes sense to to make a quotation when the girl speaks with her little brother mm. in the kitchen about that and that was a really great scene for example you know it's a masterpiece but you never know if the, it will work in the whole film you, you know it's a masterpiece during the, you do that scene and then in the film it could happen that it disappears or it's there but not uh, nothing special i, I lived it more often than uh, than the other way that it's really great so we had a few, in, in in good films, I have always one or two scenes like that where I'm, where I'm really happy and I know that worked. And then you are shaking <laughs> for the first screening, everything is finished. I think it's normal. It's, a, it's always a risky job what we're doing, and uh, there's no guarantee for anything.
0: I have to say I was a little amused when you said you were – you guys were intimidated by having Isabelle Huppert on set, just that she was that big star. I didn't think that you would have that reaction still because you've worked with so many big stars over the years.
6: No, at that time, I mean, I know if I say something like that for an American colleague, it's ridiculous because (laughs) it's full with stars. Uh, That kind of mainstream cinema... For us, it was, it was like that. It was 2001. And in fact, I started later to have more international known stars was later than, yeah. But I learned to, to, there's no, no reason to, to be scared or be afraid because if you are, uh, Straight as they are, it was, even with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, it was a very good relation. Once you are behind the fence, if I can say so, once they are sure you are not a paparazzi, <laughs> <laughs> then everything is easy. You can speak completely normally. They are even happy about that. To mention all your problems, what you think, how you, what you want to do, it was very nice discussions and very straight uh, uh completely full with substance, you know, not, not that superficial blah, blah. And that's with good people always like that. Directors as well, of course, or colleagues, whatever.
0: Well, over the years, who have been some of the easiest people for you to have those discussions with and be able to collaborate with?
6: No, I don't know. I cannot say that.
0: I would say, if I, I don't know,
6: this is not the, that's not the criteria, if I can say so. Mm-hmm. I, no, I don't know. Each project starts for me with zero. Of course you are not you, you can you grow, you have more experience. You are in a kind of stairhouse and then you're maybe the next floor. But the next project is again zero, maybe on the next floor. Oh. That means there is a certain anxiety always and uh, a kind of impulse to run away before you start the first day. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if, if it ever ends, uh, maybe not. And uh, maybe it's a good uh, conditioner for, uh, for the, for our work, you know, right. to be a little, uh, to have a little adrenaline or, or to be a little scared in a good sense or excited or, or the song uh, in the, on the act, for the actors is, uh, is it stage fever? You can say that in English?
0: I think we say, uh, stage fright. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What are you working on these days for the moment I have a lot of uh, plans
6: for uh, seminars and groups i don't uh, don't shoot for the moment I'm old enough now to wait for a, for a great project I don't want we have I have offers but they are not interesting or for example I had now a very interesting offer but the, the shooting is in uh, in South uh, America, uh, in Peru, on three, 000, four thousand meter height. Oh, I'm old. I cannot go anymore. That must be done by a younger colleague. <laughs> <laughs> to shoot on four thousand meters. Uh, two, three months, it's too much. Uh, uh, yeah. We, we will see. I hope he, he can finance the project. It's, it's underway. No, and otherwise it's, uh, I'm very content with that. And I have a lot of contacts to the, Asiatic countries or from Balkan for example, that means it's not the first world not our first world cinema, hmm. but not the classical third world cinema. I don't mean that. I mean um uh, directors, producers, actors, camera guides, all all the functions. They are so hungry, they have something to say. And in in our countries I Feel them in, if I convert that, I feel them flat and, uh, uh, maybe something, maybe not, you know, or it's uh, completely over-exaggerated, kind of hysterical. And in that count you really find simplicity in the best way. They have something to say and they search for any kind of way to express themselves. So it's, in, it's a very interesting, uh, very in, interesting confrontations. I like that and I learn a lot from it. You understand what I meant?
0: Yeah, it almost sounds like you can go back to your roots with your, the news f- footage, the, the, uh,
6: no, 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 not, uh, no, not, no, back to the roots, maybe for the intentions. Ah, right. for, the, for the love of cinema, but you no, know, no, they, they have feature projects. It's not that, but it's a kind of, they have a, a kind of fire under the S which I miss very often in our countries.
0: So almost more like going back to your love of the uh, the new wave and just we need to make a movie, yeah. we need to get it done.
6: Yeah. If I, uh, if I sit there with the digital productions, which I like now, huh? it's great possibilities, but I miss that little camera on my side. I take it, a trigger, and I can shoot. And that's that I really miss. Otherwise, you have uh, beautiful possibilities, uh, which I enjoy.
0: Herr Berger, thank you so much for your time today. With pleasure. Thank
6: Thank you you
0: so much, sir. uh, Okay, Uh, bye-bye. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Back and we we're talking about the piano teacher. So before I forget, I want to say the name of that short I was trying to think of with the uh, the performance artist who makes video games. That was uh, Malia Brooker's V slash IRL. Uh, I can't remember the name of the, the woman who is actually the subject of that short, but I highly recommend that, that one best documentary short at Chicago underground this year. So obviously I recommend it since I was on the jury anyway. So I have to say, you know, we've talked about a lot of movies that this reminds us of and Haneke, Haneke's like, he's the oldest. Bad boy director that I can think of. I don't know if that's like even a good term for him, but his movies are very unsettling. And he fits to me in this kind of little shelf of filmmakers right now that are making movies that are, they have something to say but they always make me very uncomfortable. And as I'm watching this movie, and especially as I'm watching at that one hour, 40 minute mark that we're talking about before, which spoilers was the rape scene that we're talking about. I kept thinking of Gaspar Noé. And I kept thinking of irreversible and the rape. I'm not sure which rape is worse. I don't know if we have like a top 10 rape, rape listicle that we can put together or if you know that's already been done by buzzfeed but this is up there with one of it is as uncomfortable to me as the rape and irreversible
1: i'm gonna go with this film is a little bit more uncomfortable due to the the length of it as opposed to i don't well i don't know i guess yeah i'm gonna go with this one i'm gonna stick to my fucking guns don't be a bitch um I, I'm going to go with this film because this film, it's it comes kind of out of left field in a way that it, it, it makes me, with Irreversible, I can still watch that movie. But with this film, I don't want to watch this again because of that end scene, because it's so 180 left turn down a dark street with a dead end. It, it almost makes the end of this film irredeemable in a way. And I don't I don't like it. And I don't say I don't like most things. I mean, I jokingly say, oh, I don't like Michael Bay movies. But the end of this film for me is very close verging on Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is one of those movies I refuse to really have anything to do with. And this end of this film is verging on that territory for me.
0: There's such a marked difference between – irreversible in this film insofar as irreversible though we start off i think we start off in the light or maybe we go to the light it's been a while since i've seen it but i i remember there's there's happy parts to it i think we end with the happiness as opposed to the misery at the beginning since it's all flipped around right but so much of that movie i mean the name of the club that they go to is what the sewer so much of that movie so much of irreversible is in a sewer and when you look at something like the piano teacher it is almost all in the light and it is playing in this this milieu of high art so much you know you don't get that crazy like brown note industrial music that they had in irreversible you get Schubert and Bach and all of these things you are living in this this high art world and so those moments where we delve deep makes it feel like it's even deeper like makes me feel like we're even in a in a worse space because of where we've been throughout the majority of this film
1: well and also let's be fair in irreversible Vincent Castle does get a modicum of revenge again this film it kind of gives you as Erica gives Walter, this film gives you cinematic blue balls at the end.
0: And, you know, we're talking about that end shot. We're talking about the her stabbing herself. And when she walks away, when she's going down the street, Mother is inside of that building. And it's almost like that building becomes Mother. You know, it is this institution. And it is dwarfing her as she's walking down the street. I mean, it, it's like... She might be leaving it behind. I hope she's leaving it behind. I hope she's leaving Mother behind. But it looms large over everything. I really don't know if I could accept, if I could believe that she can leave Mother, if she can change things. I mean, to your point, maybe if she has suddenly disabled herself, if now with that stabbing that she can't play the piano anymore, that now it's her left hand that needs the work— that would be it would almost be a great thing because she has been her mother's entree into that upper class world into that world that that we see where you know Erica and the other guy are playing those piano duets where we meet Walter at the beginning where they have the instruments on the wall which are for show and not necessarily for playing where it's like oh look at this this is the violin that was in the in this painting this is the actual violin so we have both musical instrument as a work of art, as well as a work of art just hanging on the wall. So these people definitely have money and this is the world to which mother aspires. And without that meal ticket, without uh, Erica anymore, her life is kind of ruined as well, which I I would be absolutely fine if, if mother's life is ruined.
1: Right. And I'm, I'm with you. And again, it, it goes to show kind of the, the, Disconnect between reality and fantasy with Erica at the end walking away from everything. I mean, realistically, she can't do that. In her fantasy, she probably thinks she can. But realistically, she walks away and she leaves her life behind. What is she going to do? Tell someone what Walter did? His, Like you said, his, his family is clearly so wealthy that it wouldn't matter anyways what she said. Because... Those with money in that regard, when something like this happens, they're not the ones that are in, in, in a problematic situation. So realistically, she tries to walk away from everything. But in reality,
0: that's not how it works. Well, as far as I understand that if you're rich or famous, you can do anything. You can do anything to a woman, grab him by the pussy. I can't remember who said that. So I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jared and Chris. Chris, what is the latest with you over at CultureCast, sir? Talking about
1: movies twice a week with my co-host, Eric, we have a little bit more of a, oh, I'm going to say it, a little bit more of a millennial spin on movies rather than a, a deep dive look like you guys do over here or you do over here at the projection booth. So it's nice to come on a podcast and get to flex my kind of mental muscles a little bit more than kind of talking about some stuff, cracking a couple jokes, and kind of taking a look at whether or not you should watch a movie versus analyzing a movie. So if you're looking for a little bit more of a, a lighter take on on film, that's what we do over the Culture Cast. And we also talk about new movies, which I know with the projection booth, that's normally not something you do.
0: Um, I didn't see an Infinity War podcast from the projection booth. I mean, we're going to do one on Annihilation next year, so that's about as close as you get.
1: Yeah, which it's totally worth doing because that movie is my favorite movie of the year so far. Oh, interesting. Except for the ending, which was when you undoubtedly invite me onto that Projection Booth podcast next year, we'll have a long conversation about the ending, I'm sure.
0: And Jared, for folks who aren't familiar with us, tell us about Show Me the Meaning. Show Me the Meaning is
3: part of Wisecrack's uh, movie. It's Wisecrack's podcast network. What is Wisecrack? Wisecrack is our, our YouTube channel, uh, that we mostly, uh, study media, video games, television, movies, books through a philosophical lens. Uh, it's kind of humanities appreciation. We're starting to get a little bit into science, but Show Me the Meaning is our movie podcast. We, similar to this podcast. We appreciate the movies, break them down analytically. And, uh, you know, we've got one of our hosts is a uh, academic philosopher. So it's a mix of like wanting to learn about philosophy while still appreciating and having fun talking about the movies that we love. So our most recent one we just did was on Hereditary. So if you're a fan of that movie, uh, check out our podcast.
0: Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, to everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the Projection Booth website at projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps Projection Booth take over the world.